Isaiah 9 in your Bibles, please. I was mentioning earlier, it has not been since 2011, my first Christmas at this church that we have had Christmas on a Sunday. And it's uh, an, an exciting thing when we can take uh, our time on the actual Christmas day and celebrate together in our normal worship slot. It's very special because this is family. We share a bond among us this morning that is, is in many ways much thicker than simply the bond of blood. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Who better to spend our Christmas together with than our family, than those with whom we will spend eternity with? This morning and this evening will be both topical sermons related to the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the event for which we celebrate this holiday of Christmas. The world around us celebrates it for many other reasons. However, uh, many Christians won't even necessarily call it Christmas. They'll call it Advent season or whatever it might be. Um, but we celebrate, we, we take time, we sing the songs, we do this every year as a memorial to the light of the world coming into the world. When it comes to Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, there was one man that I would say was most privileged to receive of information regarding Messiah, and that was the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is filled with Messianic prophecies, but particularly in Isaiah 7 through 11, there is a wealth of information related to Messiah. And this evening, we're going to consider Isaiah 7. Now, we're doing Isaiah 9 this morning, 7 this evening. Why reverse them like that? Well, because in Isaiah 7, I'm going to draw a pretty close link between that prophecy and not just Jesus' coming, but also what we've been talking about in 2 Samuel. So it'll, in some ways, be a continuation, our final message in some ways, in our 2 Samuel series, even though we technically finished that series uh, two weeks ago, Sunday night. So we're going to be talking about Isaiah 7 this evening, but this morning it's Isaiah 9. In it we find one of the most definitive statements of Messiah's identity in the Bible. Now, one of the disadvantages of teaching Isaiah 9 this morning and 7 this evening is that the context of Isaiah 7 helps us understand what's being said in Isaiah 9. As a matter of fact, 7 and 8 are important to understanding Isaiah 9, and indeed Isaiah 9 is important to understanding 10 and 11. It's all very contiguous. So, let's briefly summarize a few concepts from Isaiah chapter 7 as we begin our message this morning. In Isaiah 7, verses 14 and 15... Uh, the king Ahaz receives a prophecy, and the prophecy says this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Isaiah prophesied of a sign to be given to the house of David, that God had redeemed David's house and brought about in King David's line the one who would rule in justice and in judgment. And that sign would be a child born to a virgin whose name would be called Emmanuel. Now, when we speak of the name of someone in the Bible, the name, as we've covered many times in this church, 
We're not talking simply about the letters that make up the label by which they identify themselves. My name is Jamin, J-A-M-E-N. That is my name, but that's not my name, my reputation. It is not how you know me. You know me by my name. Some of you know me by Jamin. Most of you know me by pastor. But pastor is a title, as there could be many other titles related to me. And when the Bible speaks of a name, it's speaking of identity. The essence of who a person is is reputation. So Proverbs 22.1 says this, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Now this doesn't mean that having a good label, a good name, the letters of your name, is better than having money. To say that having the name Bob is better than riches, but having the name Ernie is not, is silly, right? That, that's not what this is saying. It's not taking the actual name that you have and saying if you've got a good one, then it's better than riches. If you have a bad one, it's not. What this means is that having a good reputation, a good identity, is better than having great riches. To have a good testimony among others is better than having a bad testimony but great wealth. That's what this verse is saying. That when somebody thinks of you to have a good reputation, to have a good testimony, when someone thinks of your name, to say, yeah, that person is humble, kind, generous, reasonable, listens well, whatever it might be, that that's better than great riches. A name is an identity. It's the sum total of what people think of us and who others understand us to be. And as we carry this into our understanding of Messiah's name in Isaiah 7, as well as our passage uh, that will be in just a moment in Isaiah 9, we see this concept, the name of the child. When Messiah was born, they didn't call him Emmanuel, did did they? He didn't go through life being Emmanuel of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, the angel said explicitly, Thou shalt call his name, not Emmanuel, but Jesus. If his actual name was Emmanuel, then we've got the wrong Messiah. But if his actual name was not Emmanuel, then what is this saying? That his name shall be called Emmanuel. Well, this is his identity. This is his reputation, his testimony. The Hebrew word Emmanuel. It's actually not just one word, it's a phrase. The phrase, God with us. Isaiah tells the house of David that this child who would be born of a virgin, who would be their Messiah, would have an identity. That he would be God among men. That would be his name, that would be his reputation, that would be what they would know him as. Certainly his name is Jesus of Nazareth, but he would be God. God with us. And we can continue to trace his identity, his name, through Isaiah 8. Isaiah is told to name his newborn son, Meir Shalal Ashbaz. It's the longest name in the Bible. Meir Shalal Ashbaz. A Hebrew phase meaning they hasten to the spoil. It was intended to declare the reality that very soon the Assyrians would come, they would destroy Syria, and they would destroy the northern tribes of Israel. But, but the Assyrians would not stop there. 
They would threaten Judah as well. And we read of this in Isaiah 8.8, where Isaiah writes, And he shall pass through Judah, and he shall overthrow and go over. And he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. So now Isaiah is speaking to this Emmanuel, to this Messiah that would come, to the one who would be God with us, calling the land of Judah Emmanuel's land. We even have a song titled that, don't we? Emmanuel's land. And saying that the Assyrians would pass through Emmanuel's land, but not overtake it. Isaiah would continue to write of the troubles which would surely accompany the nation for their sins. He calls the nation unto repentance. He calls them to fear the Lord. And it is within this context, we're speaking of Emmanuel, God with us, who would be born of a virgin. And then it would be Emmanuel's land that would be have troubled times. And we read these words in Isaiah 9, verse 1. If you're in your Bibles, you can look at it with me. Nevertheless, the text says, the, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lighted affliction in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. Within this context, as within the context of every prophecy of judgment against the nation of Israel, God always gives words of hope. And Isaiah 9 begins with hope. Following statements of judgment and destruction, which you can study yourself in Isaiah 8 if you want to dig into it a little bit, Isaiah writes that the dimness shall not be on the land which was vexed. That though this time of judgment would fall upon the nation of Israel and on the nation of Judah, yet there was coming a dawn at the end of the night, a light at the end of the darkness. The old adage goes that there's always light at the end of the tunnel, that when you're going through a tunnel, the tunnel has to end and there's always light on the other side. Well, when you read prophecy of judgment upon Israel, God always, always, always couples that judgment with a promise of mercy. And so we read in verse 2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Isaiah looks forward to a time when a great light will shine as the people walked in darkness. That a people living in a land in the midst of the shadow of death had a great light shine upon them. Now throughout the scriptures, the concept of light is an illustration which represents truth, holiness, righteousness, and knowledge. We use it as such even today, right? We talked about shedding some light let me shed some light upon the situation for you. When we, when we tell someone we're going to shed some light upon their situation, it means we're going to give them more information so that they can understand better the situation at hand. We speak of coming to the light as an expression meaning to indicate that a person is choosing to do something right and proper. Yeah, they were going to do that, but now they've come to the light, right? Now they've seen the light. Now they understand better. Now they're coming to the good side, um, in whatever, either jovial or not so much jovial way that we might use that expression. I've got a lot of different ones that may or may not connect to you. The one that I always think of is um, uh, when, when my wife and I were, were, were down in, in the South, there was a, always a great contention between uh, calling it 
Coke versus calling it pop versus calling it soda, right? Uh, someone might say, yeah, now they're calling it this. They've come to the light. They've seen the light. They understand. And, and, and we might use the phrase in those ways. Isaiah says that the people that were walking in darkness saw great light. And he describes this as being the people in the land of Israel. In the midst of the darkness, when all hope seemed lost, when the shadow of death was over them, when darkness was prepared to consume all, the people that walked in darkness saw a great light. Verse 3 continues, Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Isaiah is looking at a time, a time when this light would shine, when the nation would begin to multiply again, but the joy of the nation would not increase as the nation itself grew. But as that light would shine, this would change. They would joy before this light as a joy in harvest. When the time to gather had come, when, when the work was, was over for the season, the toil was over, the harvest had come in, they had enough food and they would throw a great feast in the time of joy, in the time of delight because the harvest had come in. We even sang some of those songs around Thanksgiving, right? About harvest, about the harvest coming in and how uh, former generations, before we had the, the industrialization of farming and such. Former generations, there would be a great celebration at the time of the harvest. The, the harvest would come in, there would be plenty for the winter, and the people could relax, they could celebrate. Isaiah says there will be a multiplying of the nation, but there will be no joy. And, but when this light comes, they shall joy, according to the joy of harvest. When this light shines into the darkness, the anticipated end the awaiting of the hope of the generations of the faithful in Israel would come to an end. As the anticipation ends at the harvest, so too this anticipation of this light would end. And why this hope? Why this joy? What would this light accomplish? Why would the light shining into the darkness of this time bring them joy as the joy of a long-expected Event coming to its conclusion, verses 4 and 5. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor is in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warriors with confusion and noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Bondage is a running theme throughout the history of Israel. The essence of Israel's historical narrative focuses upon deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. They trace their lineage, in fact, from milestone to milestone of men, people, and nations who have decided to destroy them. They trace their history through Laban and Pharaoh and Midian and the Canaanite nations to Assyria and Babylon to Haman to the Mohammedans to the Catholics to the Reformers to the Nazis to Islam. All of which have desired to destroy them. Such has always been the legacy of the Jewish people. This great light, however, would come. And as this nation saw the great light, they would rejoice in Him, for He would break the yoke of their burden, break the rod of their oppressors, as in the days of Midian, 
it says. Referencing back to God's deliverance of, of Israel, it might have been one of two deliverances, either in the days of Balaam and Barak or in the days of Gideon. And following this great deliverance, all elements of war, from the warrior to the noisy battles to the garments stained in blood, will all be burned, will be removed. This will not be a judgment of confusion and noise and blood and garments rolling, but a judgment of by fire. That consuming fire spiritually of the Lord's judgment. No more war, only peace. And how can these things happen? How could such things happen? What is this light that it will be able to bring joy to Israel, break the strength of Israel's oppressors, and abolish war, abolish evil? And this is where we get to the name of this one. Verses 6 and 7. Just verse 6 here, excuse me. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. How would all this take place? What is this light that was shining to the darkness? Well, there's going to be a child born. And this child who would be born. And don't forsake the context here, right? In Isaiah 7, there was prophesied that a son would be born. He would be born of a virgin, and his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In Isaiah 8, as the prophecies speak of this judgment... This judgment would come upon Emmanuel's land. And then in Isaiah 9, the prophet says that in the midst of this judgment upon Emmanuel's land, there would be a child born, linking Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 7, that this virgin would conceive and bear a child, and his name would be called Emmanuel. And it would be in the time when his land was under bondage, but Emmanuel would come, and he would be called some other things, this child who is born. And the government would be upon his shoulders, he would take upon himself the government, the ruling of his own people, and he would have a name. His identity would be called. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be wonderful. We often attribute the word wonderful to something that we like, something that we enjoy, something that we delight in. But the word wonderful literally means to excite wonder or admiration. There's several words that we use that, that um, we, we probably shouldn't in the trite context that we use. Words like amazing and wonderful and, and um, awesome, right? These are words that God often uses to describe himself, an awesome God, a wonderful God. And we use them to talk about, uh, you know, the, the type of cheese that we, we taste or, or, or how good the french fries were, whatever the case may be. We're probably dumbing down the word a little bit more because Awesome, wonderful, words that inspire wonder, things that inspire wonder, things that inspire awe. It's astonishing. He will excite admiration and wonder. He will be called wonderful. He will be called counselor, an advisor, one of great wisdom, a guide to those who are in darkness, one who can guide through the path of life, the mighty God. Here it is, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 
the mighty God is this child. Did Israel know that their Messiah would be God? After all, when Jesus came and he began announcing himself that he was Messiah, did they know that that meant he was calling himself God? They must have. Because this child who had been born of a virgin, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. And here, this child who would be born upon whose shoulders the government would be placed, he is the mighty God. Well, certainly the Jews couldn't believe that, right? Because they believed what the Old Testament says. The Lord thy God is one God. Well, here it is. He would be the everlasting Father. This is the Father. This is God the Father. Jehovah has come. Jehovah would come. The governor would be born as a child, but this child would be God with us. He would be the mighty God. He would be the everlasting Father. He would be the ever-existent I Am, the one who announced himself to Moses in the burning bush, I Am that I Am, the name Jehovah. Jehovah would govern them. Jehovah would come. And you can read about this in Ezekiel as well, where God says, I will be your shepherd. I will come. I will rule you. I will shepherd you. I will be the one to lead you. The prophecy is clear. The one who would come, this child who would be born, he'd be born of a, of a virgin, he would be God. He would be the great and only God, the one God, the mighty God, Jehovah. And in this we're introduced to a concept which should be familiar, found in sound doctrine, which we call the Trinity. Now the word Trinity is not found in the Bible but it encompasses the truth found throughout the Bible that there is only one God who exists in three distinct persons. Three different persons, the same in essence, quality, and character. God, Jesus is not just one manifestation of one person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're not three different manifestations of one person. They are three distinct persons who make up one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But they are all Jehovah God, all one God, functioning in complete harmony through thought, will, and action, so that to see one is to see the other. And this is what Jesus taught. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that to see Jesus is to see God. To, to see the functioning of the Holy Spirit is to see God working, so that Jehovah could be this child who was born, so that this child who was born could be the mighty God and the everlasting Father. For indeed, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. It's not necessarily the easiest thing to picture the Trinity. The illustration that I normally give is dancing, ballroom dancing. If you see two people ballroom dancing, they move as one. They come together, and they're two distinct persons, but when they come together, they move as one entity. Each movement is in sync, one with another. Two people, one entity. We think of that with three. Say, well, Pastor, I'm still not getting it. The best element, perhaps one of the best illustrations of the Trinity that we can find today is water. Now, up here in Minnesota, we have a great opportunity in the winter to see just how dynamic water is. Is water a liquid? Yes. Is water a gas? Yes. Is water a solid? 
Yes, it is. Water is a liquid, a gas, and a solid. Ice is frozen water. Steam is gas, water. And then that which we call water is water in its liquid form. It's its general name. As we think about this, it's very similar to the way we might describe the Trinity. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and then God is God. Just as water is a general name and a liquid. But then you have two different names, ice and steam, for the different forms of water. So to Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. God the Father is God, but they are all God. Perhaps such a perspective can help you relate to an understanding of the Trinity. So while Jesus is not the Father, He can be called the Everlasting Father, for indeed He shares essence, quality, and character with the Father, co-equal as the Son of God. He is God in flesh. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And notice the final name here given to Him in Isaiah 9, verse 6. The Prince of Peace. This is the one that is so very important in the context of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, that this child Emmanuel, the one whose light will shine into the darkness, will cause all of Israel's enemies to be destroyed and will usher in peace. And here we have what we might understand to be the very fullest description of the identity of Messiah in the whole of the Old Testament. His character is wonderful. His wisdom as counselor. His power as the mighty God. His essence as the everlasting Father. His function the Prince of Peace. But the text continues in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This government of the king would be a government of absolute peace. And of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He will sit upon the throne of David. He is the descendant to the kingly line of David. The light that dawns in the darkness, the light that shines in the darkness from verse 2, to all who receive it, this eternal light ending in eternal life. This governor, the Messiah, God in flesh, will be a perfect governor, ruling in complete justice, ruling in complete judgment. And indeed, the zeal of the, whole, the Lord of hosts will perform this. That word zeal in the Hebrew is actually the word jealousy. Our Lord is a jealous Lord, is He not? And there's coming a day when the authority and the power which God has, which He has deferred, as He has allowed men to rule this world, as He has allowed His people to be destroyed and to be persecuted, as He has allowed His church to suffer for the sake of Christ, there's coming a day when all of that will be taken back with a vengeance. So where are we going with all of this today? This is Christmas. It's not a very Christmassy sounding message. Where are we going with this? This child called Emmanuel, who becomes a king, of whose government and peace has no end, is that child. Right? The child that we read about in Sunday school. The child that we see in all of the manger scenes 
as you drive around the town. That child, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, on a night some 2,000 years ago. Eight days later, his name was given to him at his circumcision, named Jesus. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. His identity, Isaiah 7, Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And this leads us to the New Testament. Jesus was born some 2,000 years ago. He grew into a man and began about the age of 30 to proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, that the government of God had come. He announced himself to be Messiah. And at that point, every Jew should have known that the man was claiming to be Emmanuel. The man was claiming to be this child. The fulfillment of Isaiah 7 through 11. They didn't believe him. So they rejected him. And they killed him. And he died upon a cross. But three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and over death and over hell. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come, at which time God will chasten his people Israel back to himself through the tribulation. And Christ will return to deliver his people and become the just and judging ruler over the house of David, whose government and peace will have no end. Now we recognize that many of these things have yet to happen. Jesus has yet to establish his kingdom on earth. He's established his kingdom in our hearts. He has yet to bring peace upon this earth, though he has brought peace and reconciliation to our hearts. And this is where Jesus' identity touches us today. How does Jesus' identity as wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, how does it touch us today? Well, we'll focus our application this morning on exactly that. Jesus Christ has touched the lives of every person in this room. The very essence of traditional Western culture and morality is founded upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. To most in this room, Jesus is more than just that. He has touched you even deeper as the gospel has entered into your hearts and fundamentally changed your life so that you embody the essence of what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. And this is because Jesus came as the light of the world. And this is our first point this morning as we apply. Number one, the light of the world is Jesus. Isaiah 9-2 told us this, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. In John 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The light of Isaiah 9-2, the light that shined in the darkness in Emmanuel's land, the light was Emmanuel himself. The child that would be born upon whose shoulders the government would live, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that light is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. And this should not just have meaning to us. This should mean everything to us. This should not just have meaning to us. This should mean everything to us. When the sun goes down, darkness surrounds your existence. At that point, in any given day, your ability to continue to function depends entirely upon your access to light. Whether it's the light of the moon or stars, or whether it's a snowy day so it's brighter at night because of the snow, or whether it's a lamp that you turn on, or a light of a keychain, or you turn the screen on on your phone so that you can see what you're doing. Whatever it might be, your ability to function after the sun goes down depends entirely upon having some source of light. In the midst of utter darkness, light doesn't just become helpful, light becomes essential, right? When, when you are in utter darkness, light becomes essential essential to function. You can't function without it. Now, the world in which we live, on the testimony of the Word of God, is in complete spiritual darkness. It is unable to function in any spiritually meaningful way. And this is why Jesus being the light of the world should not just have meaning to us, it should mean everything to us. Because outside of Jesus... There can be no proper spiritual functioning at all. The world rests in the darkness, the spiritual darkness that has enveloped the world through sin. And Jesus is the light that has broken into that darkness. But not everyone wants that darkness, that light, do they? We continue... In John 3. And in John 3, the Bible says this. This is the condemnation. Verse 19. That light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What is the condemnation? Light has shined into the world. Jesus has come into the world and men love their darkness so much their darkness that, that kept their evil, what they thought was hidden, that kept their hearts from them having to acknowledge just how evil and wicked and depraved their hearts are. And they liked that. And so when the light shined into the world, like throwing open the curtains on a bright morning when you've been sleeping in the darkness and your eyes just burn, men love darkness rather than light. Because men want to continue in their evil deeds. They love it. They reject the light because they're much more comfortable in the dark. Like a thief in the night, man's heart thrives in darkness. Not because it's able to see clearly, 
but specifically because he cannot see clearly. And so his sin remains hidden to himself, and he can live in denial of his shortcomings, and the condemnation which his shortcomings have positioned him to receive, he can ignore, and he doesn't have to think about the fact that there's coming a day of judgment, and he doesn't have to think of the fact that he's fallen short of the glory of God, and he doesn't have to think of the fact that God is a moral arbiter who stands above him, and that he's accountable to him, and he doesn't have to think of it because he's living in darkness. But the light of the world is Jesus, piercing into the darkness of this world, piercing into the darkness of its sin and of its rebellion with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel literally means good news, and it is good news. What is the good news? Well, it starts with bad news, right? Because it begins with the reality that you and I are sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says, not just you and I, but all have sinned. And because we have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy. We are not. God cannot have fellowship with that which is unholy, with that which is not perfect. Darkness and light cannot be together, can they? You can have light in the darkness, but you can't have light-dark or dark-light. When light hits darkness, the darkness goes away. When light is turned off, the darkness envelops. Where there is darkness, there is no light. Where there is light, there is no darkness. It's that way. That's how light and darkness works. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, 1 John tells us. And we are darkness by definition, which means the light cannot have any concord, cannot have any fellowship with the darkness until the darkness is taken away. You have sinned in your heart is darkness. And that's bad news. But it's okay. Because God has fixed the problem. You can't fix the problem. You can't turn your heart from darkness to light. Once your heart is dark, is dark. The sins that you commit, that isn't what makes your heart dark. That's just evidence of the darkness of your heart. It's like a fever or a cough. When you get a fever or you get a cough, Those are symptoms of a deeper problem, right? The cough is not the problem. The fever is not the problem. The fever is a symptom. I can treat the fever, but if I don't treat the virus that's causing the fever, the infection that's causing the fever, the fever's not going to go away. It's going to keep coming back again and again and again. The sins you commit is like a fever. That's not the problem. It's the symptoms that you have a deeper problem. That you have an infection in your very heart that needs to go away and you can't heal it. You need someone else to come in and to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can't work yourself to heaven because you've done wrong. You've sinned. And the first time you sinned, you were confirmed in your darkness. Man's heart is naturally sinful. Darkness envelops man. You can't work yourself out of it. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of church. It's not going to be baptism. It's not going to be helping little old ladies across the street. It's not going to be giving all your money away. It's not going to be any of those things. None of those things can undo the fact that you're a sinner. So where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us and God. With us as sinners, and God as a creator who loves you, So much 
that he sent his son, Emmanuel, God in flesh, into this world. Born of a virgin, 100% man, 100% God, and he did something very special for you. I already read John uh, 3, 19. I'm going to be working my way backward here. In John 3, 17, the Bible says this, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son into the world to save the world, to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to do for you what I can't do for you. No church can save you. No church can undo the sin that's in your heart. But Jesus can. See, because Jesus is a man who lived a perfect life, but he was rejected by the world. For as we just read, men love darkness rather than light. So they killed him. But this was God's will. The Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Because through Jesus' death, your debt for sin, the illness that is in your heart, can be cured. The debt can be paid. The Bible tells us that as Jesus hung upon the cross and his blood was shedding from his body, it was pouring out onto the ground, a cruel instrument of death, he bore the punishment for your sin. The Father made His Son to bear your sin, so that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God hath made Him. He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God made Jesus sin for you. He took your sin and He placed it on Jesus. He took the wrath and the judgment and the anger for what you have done for your offenses against God, and He poured out His wrath upon Jesus on that day. Jesus was made sin for you. He was made sin for me to pay your debt. He took your sin upon himself and he says, now it can be replaced with my righteousness. Jesus paid for your darkness. He became darkness so that you could have his light. So that he could shine his light into your heart and give you light. So we continue working backwards. We'll begin in John 3.16 and read all the way back up to verse 19. So the Bible tells us this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we know why, what our problem is, why we need a, a solution. Because we're sinners, we have darkness. We know what God did to undo it. He sent His Son to bear our penalty, to pay our debt, to become darkness for us so that we could bear Christ's light. How do we do it? How do we receive it? Not everyone will. It's, it wasn't just by default, now everybody's saved. The only those who receive it John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the Gospel. How do we receive it? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the good news. That if you will receive it, if you will accept with every ounce of your being the truth that Jesus came to save sinners, that you are one of those sinners, that He died on the cross, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day to offer you eternal life through his death alone, not your works, not your efforts, not your goodness, not baptism, not church membership, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, 
you will be saved. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 calls it repentance from dead works and faith towards God. A rejection of anything and everything else that you can do to get yourself to heaven and to turn toward the only one who can save you. And it's not Allah. And it's not Buddha. And it's not your government. And it's not a priest. And it's not the Pope. It is Jesus Christ alone. For God sent not His Son into the world, verse 17 continues, John 3, to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. If you are sitting here today, or if you're listening online under the sound of my voice, and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the Holy Spirit is laying upon your heart the reality that you are a sinner, and that you need to be saved today, there is also something else in you that will want to keep you from that light. You'll want to stay in your darkness because it's comfortable there. Because men love darkness rather than light. But as many as received him, John 1 says, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Those that walk in darkness, you can have the light of life. Those who are condemned are not those who have sinned, for indeed we, have all have, we all have sinned. Those who are condemned are those who reject the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. We have all walked in darkness, but condemnation rests upon those who reject the light that was shined into their hearts. Don't reject that light today. Jesus' ministry as the light of the world has only begun once the light is received, however. We then become ambassadors of that light. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, as the majority of you likely have, your job isn't finished. Jesus isn't finished in you. Understand the situation with me. The world is in spiritual darkness, complete and utter darkness. They don't understand their relationship to God. They don't understand their relationship to sin. Some know that they're in darkness, but they don't know that there's a light. Some walk in darkness without any clue at all. Some walk in darkness, but so deeply love their darkness that they have utterly rejected the light, though perhaps they've seen the light before. But all are in darkness. This darkness consumes every element of, of who they are, the way they think, what they do, why they do it, how they treat others, everything. You say, but there's some pretty nice people out there. That doesn't change the fact that they're walking in darkness. It doesn't. And you are the conduit through whom Jesus shines his light. If indeed you are a child of God, then you have a job to do. You are Christ's reflection in the eyes of the world. You are His means by which to shine His light in the darkness. Ephesians 5 verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children 
of light. Jesus is the light of the world. You're a child of light in the Lord. Living. Let Christ's light shine. First Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. First John 1, 5-7 This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Jesus Christ speaks of the reality that we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the means by which others hear, others see, others obey. So Jesus would tell us, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. The day that Jesus was born, Emmanuel, God with us, the light of the world, came to dwell among men. He came to do something else as well. Something else. He came to call those who would walk in His light to share it. He came to do something no one else could do. He brought darkness, uh, brought us out of darkness and into the light. And if you're a believer, you have gone out of that darkness, from groping in the darkness of this world, into operating under the context of light. And that should not just mean something to you. That should mean everything to you. That should mean the difference between having no purpose at all and having every purpose and all purpose. From having no clarity to all clarity. From having no understanding to having all understanding. And when we walk in that light, we have fellowship with Christ and we abide in Him and His light shines in us and His light shines through us. And God forbid that we should take these truths for granted. As Isaiah wrote, he wrote in Isaiah 7 through 11, he had no concept of the glory that would come. He thought, he wondered, he no doubt asked God to give more insight into the glory of these days in which we are living today, when God would be with man, when the light of the world would shine into the hearts of men. So much so that we read about this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, Peter says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets inquired and searched diligently. They wondered at the grace that would come when the light of the world shined. When, this, when would this happen? Why would this happen? How would this happen? The Messiah must suffer and then be raised into glory. A glory that would bring men unto the light. But you know what God told them? These prophets whom He loved, He said, don't worry about it. You're not writing this for you. You're writing this for those who would see those days. The prophets ached 
They longed for what you and I walk around with every day. And I'm not talking about indoor plumbing. And I'm not talking about electric lights. I'm not talking about instant communication around the world. I don't mean the capacity to travel long distances in a short amount of time. Those weren't the things that the prophets longed for. What the prophets longed for, what they saw, and they said, wow, the generation that gets that is going to be special. They're going to have something so special, Christ in you. That's what they longed for. They longed for the Holy Spirit's indwelling. They longed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophets sat in their chairs at night and they thought, wow, I can't even imagine how great it will be to live in the time after Messiah has come, after the light of the world has come into the world, when the Holy Spirit will dwell in men, when they will have the capacity to choose good and reject evil, unlike anything that we have. And this gift, purchased with the suffering and death of Emmanuel, it's yours. You walk around with it every day. How much has this truth, how much has this light touched your life? How much should it touch your life? Is that gift as precious to you as it was to the prophets who longed for it but didn't have it and eagerly anticipated it and searched diligently to understand it? See, the light of the world is Jesus. This child became a man. The man became a king. He became the prince of peace. But we dare not take for granted that which we have. Are you taking for granted the light which is in you? The Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you? Are you quenching Him? Are you grieving Him? Are you ignoring Him? The truth that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, that He's come into the world, that He's shined in our hearts, this should not just mean something to us. This should mean everything. To us. This should redefine our lives. It should be the context within which every breath is taken. It should be the context of everything that we write, everywhere that we go, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we watch. The prophets longed for it. They craved it. They thirsted for it. They said, wow, what a generation who will have these things. We have it. And we can go a whole day without even knowing it's there, can't we? God forbid. Number two. The child became a man. The man became a king. Will become a king, excuse me. And the prince of peace. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus will return one day, men and women. And when he does, he will return to destroy his enemies and to establish everlasting peace. We briefly read about it in Isaiah 7, which we'll consider again more this evening. We studied it in the beginning of Isaiah 9. Consider with me the end of the message, this messianic chunk of scripture in Isaiah 11, and its description of Messiah. And I'm going to close with this today. It's a longer portion of Scripture. Consider it with me. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 16. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. Does that sound like Isaiah 9? Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
and the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, and he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand up for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the second time to recover the remnant of his people the second time. What's that talking about? Well, he tried to recover the remnant the first time and they rejected him. The second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Talking about when the two nations split into the northern and the southern tribes. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together, and they shall lay their hands upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them, and the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea with his mighty wind shall he shake the hand over the rivers, and shall smite it with seven streams, and make men go over dry shot. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day he came up out of the land of Egypt. What did we just read here? The day is coming when the child, born of a virgin, born under the law, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, who lived a humble life, who died a sinner's death, will come again and govern his people. He will destroy his enemies, avenge his people, and then establish a government of perpetual peace, where not only we as humans will not hurt and destroy, but where nothing will hurt and destroy, not the animals, not the plants. Nothing would dare. The lion would not dare hurt the lamb. And so they will lie down together. Why? Because the lion would not dare hurt in Jesus' economy of peace. When Christ will rule and reign in righteousness for eternity, there will be no pain, no suffering, no evil, no war. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll be there too. You'll be there too. Every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The story of our redemption began with Adam's rebellion against God and mankind's fall to sin in the Garden of Eden. 
It ends with Jesus, the God-man, becoming the Prince of Peace, establishing His throne and ruling and reigning in righteousness. But in any good story, the middle is the climax, right? You climax in the middle. What is that climax? It's about a 30-year span that began in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. On that day, light came into the world and the world has never been the same. And as you go your way today, into this afternoon, I hope many of you will come back this evening, but as you go your way and you spend your Christmas day with family and friends and loved ones, you give gifts one to another in celebration, remember what we are celebrating, the climax of the story. Christ has come to earth, born to die upon Calvary. But the story is not yet over. That child became a man. That man died on the cross. He will one day become king. He's coming again to rule forever in peace. His kingdom, our kingdom, which will have no end. Let's pray.